Let's turn to Luke chapter 14. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. So he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard those things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. They all, with one accord, began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, these words come as a shock to us, and we pray, Lord, that indeed this might be for our benefit We pray, Heavenly Father, that these words truly would be used as a two-edged sword, bringing us to conviction of sin and also healing us and bringing us safely into the kingdom. We do pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work powerfully 
in order that this word might be preached accurately and that your people might receive. Indeed, those who are outside might be brought to living faith to receive these words. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We come to this middle portion of Luke chapter 14. And the scene is the same. Jesus is still there at the ruler's the ruler of the Pharisee's house on that very same Sabbath day as has been with the earlier part of this chapter. You know that at first they tried to entrap him by getting him to, in one way or another, violate their own rules, their rules, for their false idea of the Sabbath, completely contrary to God's purpose and God's law for the Sabbath. But Jesus, of course, set them straight. He silenced them in his words and deeds And then he turned the tables on them and spoke to them about how he saw them taking the very best places, the most honored places, whenever they went to an event like that one. And it was very clear that they had no idea of how things worked or were to be in the kingdom of God. And so in verse 15, we have this statement. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, we have no idea exactly why he might have said that. We don't know. Maybe he was entirely innocent. Sometimes people say things that they don't really understand, but are nonetheless true. And Jesus seized upon those words to correct their misunderstanding to, to, bring, to help their ignorance and to bring them to a fuller understanding of what was just said there. Now Jesus says later on what, that this, this is true. Luke twenty two twenty eight. he says, You are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table, in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It's very true. This is exactly what's going to happen. But Jesus takes that opportunity afforded by the man's comment to explain to them a little bit more of who it is who's going to partake of the heavenly feast. And that is a question, isn't it? Who Who is going to partake of that heavenly feast? Is it merely those who have received an invitation those who are invited, or is it those who actually come and come through Christ? You see, Jesus was speaking to a bunch of people who were invited. They had received an invitation to come. In fact, they were born with an invitation in their hands because they were the covenant people of God. They had the invitation in these covenant promises, the covenant sign and seal even in their body. They had this And it was, as it were, their birthright then to come. It was there for the taking. It was there for the asking. But it was very clear that by the way they were dealing with Jesus and the way they were responding to the word of God that he preached, that they were rejecting this invitation. There he was. He was there among them precisely to call them to the feast, to say all things are now ready and to bring them in. He himself was the great focus and, in fact, the substance of the feast. Not only is he the one appointed to call them, say, now is the time and to come, but he himself is the substance of that. Of course, it's his broken body, isn't it, and his shed blood that we feed upon 
and that are life-giving to all those who receive him in faith. These are the things that bring, him, bring life to them. But they ignored him. They rejected him. On the very lame excuses, we've been in here now for these, these past the chapters, and over and over again they find some new, fresh, lame excuse to re- reject Jesus. First they say, well, show us a sign. Well, he shows them so many signs that no one could possibly reject him. And then they say, well, the only way he could possibly do that is because he's in league with the devil. And then they just contort themselves one way and the other to find some new way to reject this Lord and his invitation. They make excuses. And no doubt many of them made excuses with regard to their own worldly situation. And Jesus is going to address that next time, actually. But as for this moment, as for this time, as today, we consider that it is not those who are invited who are actually going to eat, eat and drink in the kingdom of heaven. It is those who actually come. That's the title this morning. Blessed are those who actually come. Three points. A generous invitation. Secondly, lame excuses from the fit. And third, no excuses from the lame. A generous invitation. Lame excuses from the fit. No excuses from the lame. So the first point, a generous invitation. We read in verse 16, And he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. It was a great supper. Not a meager supper. It wasn't just merely to eat bread, if indeed that was what was happening at the Pharisee's house. It was a great supper, displaying displaying the great generosity of the Lord and giving generously to them. It was a, a supper not to be missed. And he invited many Now, as we're going to see, he didn't initially invite everyone. There were certain people on the invitation list. It wasn't everyone. And they had been favored with that special invitation. It was a privilege to be invited to this wonderful, great supper. But even so, it was also a generous list, not with a few names, but with many names on it. All pointing to the great generosity of the Lord, who would make this great feast and would send this wonderful invitation. And then he sends his servants To remind them at the time when everything was ready. Now, who who was that? Who who did he send anyways to tell them? Who did this Lord send? It's all speaking, of course, about God himself. And this is about his supper. It's speaking about the kingdom of God, right? And so, who was it? Well, we know that in the Old Testament, God had sent many servants. Many prophets. Many prophets. But... This was him. He was the one who was the the final prophet. He was the one who particularly was the one sent. And so even as he is speaking to them, he is speaking as the one who has been sent by God. Sent by God to bring them into that feast. All things are now ready, he says. All things are now ready. And he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom to them. These are the actions, my friends, of a very generous and gracious God. This one who has a great feast, he's prepared. This one who invites so very many people to it. And this one who's not content only with some written invitation, but rather who sins, not just men of the past, but actually sent his own son to declare these things and to take many with him 
to that feast. It's a gracious God. Well, that was a very generous invitation, first of all. But secondly, what do we have? Well, we have lame excuses from the fit. Because the response that the people make to this generous God who has his generous feast and makes his generous invitation with a long list of people on it and such a privilege to receive that that invitation, verse 18, but they all with one accord begin to make excuses. All right, now we have to read all the things here in that light that these were excuses. Now, in some sense, they go in in inverse order of how lame these excuses are. They're all lame excuses. But the first one, you you know, it says, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I I ask you to have me excused. That is extremely lame. That's, That's... Barely even worth it. Um, No one would buy a piece of land without seeing it first. And if you've already bought it, what is the point? You've got it one way or another. There's nothing pressing about going and seeing it at all. And the idea then saying, I must go and see it, as if you had some absolute moral obligation to see it right now, no one would even believe that. It's extremely lame. Well, the second one is... Also very lame, but just slightly more plausible, I suppose, in verse 19. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Well, here again, the decision's been made. It doesn't have an appointment with someone to see them to make the decision. The decision has been made. And however, I suppose it's human nature that when you buy something new, you want to try it out. There's always another day to try out those oxen. Maybe tomorrow, for instance. But there's maybe a slender amount of plausibility there. Verse 20. Still another one said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now this one has some specious false basis in the word of God. Right? Deuteronomy 24, verse 5 says, When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. And the ESV translates that, or be liable for public duty. He shall be free at home for one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he's taken. A generous provision from a generous God. He doesn't have to go to war. Likewise, in verse 20, or sorry, Deuteronomy 20, verse 7, And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man marry her. Okay? So the idea is in God's generosity. In fact, he fights his own battles. He doesn't really need people. It's an honor to be invited to, to, to join in in the army, but he doesn't really need us. So he says, look, if you have any old reason, you can, you can stay at home. You don't have to go to war. But this wasn't going to war. This was not going to a battle, was it? This is going to a feast. Of which, of course, he could bring his wife. He was not being asked to leave home for a long period of time in the slightest. It's not any great business of state. It's going to dinner. And in fact, none of those things were urgent. They all can wait a few hours, days, none of them are, in fact, none of those things are at all inconsistent with going. All these things can happen and they can still go to the feast. That's because they're just lame excuses. And why do we give lame excuses? Because we don't want to do something, right? 
They didn't want to come to this supper. And so they gave their lame excuses. And that result of all these things is that they don't actually go. They've received a generous invitation. It's a wonderful thing to a wonderfully generous sort of meal. And they make their lame excuses not to go, and they don't, because they don't want to. Well, let's see then, if that's the end of the matter. Our third point is there are no excuses from the lame. No excuses from the lame. So in verse 21, so that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house being angry. Now, let's not forget who it is that we're speaking of. Who is it that we're speaking of here? Who is the master of the house? The master of the house is a living God. And maybe some of you have been taught that God is not ever going to be angry with any of us. Well, I want you to see that is plainly not the case. Yes, he is slow to anger, wonderfully slow. He declares that. That is part of his character. He is slow to anger. When we think of his anger, please do not think of someone rashly flying off the handle, losing control or something like that. That's not that. He is slow to anger. But there comes a point when even his great patience comes to an utter end and he is angry with sinners. And that's why Jonathan Edwards reminds us it is indeed a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God because he is capable of being angry with such people who so despise his word, his invitation. And just to say what you probably know, why he might be angry in such a case, is because these people were so ungrateful as to spurn his gracious invitation to his gracious and generous feast. Well, maybe they found time to come to feasts like this one, held by local notables, local petty officials like this ruler, the Pharisee. They could make time in their busy schedule, as it were, to come to those invitations. And Jesus had seen them. He'd been around them. He'd seen how they claw for the very best seats in the house of those sorts of things, wedding feasts, by those whose names, of course, history have forgotten, but... I guess they thought were socially important. They found time for that. But the great feast to which they were invited, or rather the great one to whom they were invited, because that's what we're speaking about here, Christ himself, they were invited to him. They were invited to Christ to partake of him, to receive him in faith, and they paid him no heed whatsoever. They said it is not worth Our time. I'm doing my hair. I've got a show I need to watch. I'm doing something. That's when we can't even be bothered, I suppose, to come up with a a lame excuse. You just say, I'm doing something. So how does this angry master standing for an angry God respond Well, it is not in the first and immediate place by bringing final judgment upon those who were originally invited. That's going to happen. But rather, he first brings a different kind of judgment. He said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city 
and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. Now notice that is exactly the same list as what we had in verse 13. The ones that Jesus said they should be inviting to their feast. In imitation to their wonderfully gracious God, the ones who cannot repay them, the, the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. These are the ones. And this is where our ears perk up because, of course, this is us. We, we, don't, we don't have the money to pay for the feast. We don't have money to repay by having a feast for him. We're not in fit condition to go to the temple. You know, by the way, those who were maimed, it was against the law for them to be in the main part of the temple. And the lame, they couldn't even make it there. The blind, they couldn't even see. None of these things, they were utterly unfit. But he says, go, go and bring in here these people. And he's not even done then. In verse 22, the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. Now, look, we can't be 100% sure, but the question is, who's going to be living in those highways and byways and the hedges? They tend to have reasons to be living there. They're not even living on the, the streets and lanes of the city, as it were, with the poor who, who simply can't afford a place. This is the homeless, right, in the previous verse. But in verse 23, we're looking at some people who are, are trying to hide because they're criminals, The people who live in the highways and the byways are criminals. And these are the ones that he's inviting to come in now. It's not just that they they can't contribute. It's just not that they, they have no hope of repaying the master, but they are those who deserve his punishment. And again, brothers and sisters, this is a picture of us. We are not merely those who are not by nature qualified to come. Those who have nothing to pay, yes, that is us. Those who are blind, yes, even. But it is more than that. We are positively disqualified. We have every reason to hide from the master, every reason to get out of his sight because we should be punished by him. We then are the recipients, the ones who have been compelled to come into the kingdom of heaven. It's a picture of us. And then here's the judgment in verse 24. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. It's a double judgment. You see, he brings in those who have no native right to be there from the outside, and he excludes those who were invited, but have despised their invitation. That's just what was said in in Luke 13, 25. You see the judgment that has been given on the, the Jews in this case? When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. Wouldn't that be the case for these people who were there at that time in the, the ruler's house eating and drinking with the Lord Jesus? Aren't they going to say that? Aren't they the ones who thought they were going to come? Blessed are those who eat and drink in the kingdom of heaven, thinking that they were going to come. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. 
Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Now listen, here's where it comes. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. Because in their rejection, God now extends that invitation to the whole wide world and bringing in the Gentiles. And one day, these very people, some of them are going to be there on the, on the judgment day, and they're going to see their places, the ones that were marked for them being taken by Gentile dogs from all over the world that had no right to be there whatsoever. And they themselves thrust out forever in eternity. That's the judgment. You do not spurn the invitation of this master. Romans 10, 19. But I say, did Israel not know? For Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You see, he's going to provoke to jealousy by bringing in those from the east and the west, the north and the south. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth because of it. And so it was in Acts 13, 45. When the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. And Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, the invitation given to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And that's what was happening here. It's double judgment that those who are invited, they don't get to come in. No, the other ones, and they watch them come in and take their places Invitations having their name scratched off and given to someone else. And they themselves thrust out. One final thing to say on this point is the point itself. Notice what wasn't said about these poor and maimed and lame and blind. And those who lived in highways and byways because they had something to hide. You know what wasn't there? Lame excuses. When the the man came, when the messenger came in his urgency to call, to compel them, there were no excuses to be found in their lips. Not a single one recorded. These other ones, they had three lengthy excuses recorded for us in their detail. But these people, they they don't have any excuses. You know what? They're poor. They don't own any land. They couldn't. There is no team of oxen for them to go try out, is there? No one's going to give their respectable daughter to the maimed, the lame, or the blind. And nothing actually is there to get in the way of responding to that invitation. That's Jesus' point. Jesus' point, verse 33, later on in this chapter. So likewise, whoever of you who does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And sometimes it is a case that those who have the most, those who have been given every privilege by God, 
are the ones who actually despise that invitation. And these ones, these lame, they have no excuses. They couldn't be any less qualified to come. And particularly, again, the highways and byways. They were sinners. They were criminals. But there's no excuse. They're just thankful to receive the invitation. Well, the applications, some of them are pretty obvious, aren't they? The first one is pretty simple, that you ought to come. You ought to come. Please do not be content to have received an invitation. Some of you have received an invitation. In fact, actually now all of you have received an invitation to come. But I want you to know that there will be those on the last day who actually were there in the midst of Jesus. Not just when some, some ordinary preacher is relaying to you what happened on that day. There will be those who actually heard from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself the very same words. And they will be thrust out. Because they will make all sorts of lame excuses as to why they cannot come. Now, what about those, by the way, who, who were with Jesus that day, in that same house, seated at the same table? There are, some of them are in hell, right? Right now. And what would they do if they could come back? What, were they, what, what would they do if they were to have a chance to hear the words of Jesus again? Surely they would embrace Jesus Christ. I don't think there would be any lame excuses had they had the opportunity again. They would not be considering their team of oxen or their their piece of land. They wouldn't even be considering their husband or wife. They would consider it absolutely nothing. They would let nothing get in their way of responding to the invitation. And they would come. Of course, they can't. That's what you need to do. If you've received an invitation, you need to come to Jesus Christ. Not keep him at arm's length but embrace him in faith. Secondly, I would say particularly to covenant children, for you, don't make excuses. You have a wonderful, wonderful privilege, don't you? Wonderful privilege indeed that you have an invitation to the feast. Those of you who were born into a Christian family, you come with a gold-plated invitation with your name on it. When I or some other true minister of the gospel baptizes you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, your name is associated with that. You have a gold-plated invitation. You have an engagement, even, to be the Lord's. It isn't like an engagement ring. You are there. But you've got to come. As I want you to know that there are a lot, unfortunately. There are all too many of those gold-plated invitations that end up having their names scratched off and given to someone else because their owner rejected it. Their owner despised it, trampled it underfoot, took that and, and walked over it with their dirty feet and threw it away somewhere and forgot about it. My dear children, please do not let that happen to you. Please do not account just because it is so easy, just because it is in your grasp, just because it is your birthright. Please do not think it something to be despised. Do you know that's human nature? 
That the things that come easy, as it were, the things that are given to us, they, they sometimes despise these things. But don't let it happen to you. Don't make excuses. Don't let anything ever get between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. You embrace him while he is among you. Thirdly, I would say that we, as I think all Gentile people here, we should be thankful for the place that we have. We should be thankful to God for how he's extended this invitation to us. Again, going back to Romans 11, just so we see how it goes. Romans 11, 11. I say then, have they stumbled, speaking of the Jews, that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more? Their fullness. And in verse 17, and if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. That's, that's us. We are so used to the gospel going out to the whole world that we almost think that is our birthright. Well, it's not. By nature, we are strangers and aliens from the household of God, and we should be mindful of that. We should be thinking of a situation where it might be that all the invitations have Jewish names on them, and there's not a single one with a Gentile name on them. Because God would be more than well within his rights to have done such. But rather, every day, we should be thankful for, those, for that, that, that in fact God has extended that to the poor and the maimed, and the lame, and the blind, and those in the highways, and the byways of this world, to the east, and to the west, and to the north, and to the south, that we might be brought in. And may we be thankful indeed for our places. Fourthly, I think we should have this kind of attitude to the loss that the master did. The master was not going to have empty seats in his house. That was a dishonor to him, and it was not going to happen. And so when he gets all the poor in the town, all the maimed and all the blind and all the lame, he goes out to the highways and byways and compels them to come in, lest there be any empty seat in his house. And I, I, you know that there will no, not be any empty seats in heaven. Every last one of them will be filled. But for us, there are some empty seats here. And it shouldn't be that way. There are hundreds of thousands of perishing people in the Northeast. And it is a shame that there is a single empty seat in this house. We should be praying with that kind of urgency. We should be sending with that kind of urgency as this master had. And I would say as a specific part of the application that we ought to be praying for specific people constantly. Write them down. Tell other people about it. Have them constantly in the prayer meeting. Don't let, don't let us forget about them. So the Lord hears our prayers. Fifthly and finally, I say we pray for this country. Because I know by absolutely the primary and the main application of all this is for the Jews, these who despise their invitation, and the Lord opened it up to others as judgment. 
But by, by, by extension, that principle surely must apply in some way to Christian nation. Because if this is God's way of dealing with people, that those who have been given such privileges and then who despise them as nothing, trample them underfoot, and he withdraws his hand from them and instead brings in those from round about that they would never dream of. You think that's true, maybe, for Christian nations? What were things like in 1900? Would anyone dream that the people among whom tens of millions are coming in are not England and Scotland and Ireland and Germany and so forth? No. No, actually it's Africa, Korea, Indonesia, China, Latin America, all the rest of these places. They're the place where God is now streaming in people. And in our own land that has so long received the gospel, it is a tiny trickle. We're a missions receiving nation. Do you know that? It's true. That's the way we should pray for this people. Not as those who have never heard the gospel, but of those who may well be under some judgment of the Lord. As a people who have long despised this invitation. We should earnestly cry out that the Lord would remember mercy and judgment. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are indeed very, very thankful for your generosity, for your graciousness, for your goodness in making such a feast and inviting people to come. Oh, Heavenly Father, we know that so many of those who were originally invited, despised their invitation, thought absolutely nothing of it, and, and let anything and everything, every lame excuse, get in the way of coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we are thankful even that in your judgment you have extended this invitation to us of the Gentile nations. Oh, Heavenly Father, how we pray that we would not despise this message, this messenger, but Lord, rather we would receive it. That while the day of salvation remains, we would embrace Christ in faith. Every last covenant child would clutch his or her invitation with, with everything, despising the world, but not this invitation, and come into that wedding feast through Christ, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we pray, Lord, that those from the nations round about whom you are calling, that, Lord, we would truly see them streaming in. In fact, some of them here present and see them in eternity as you have been so good to bring in. Those who have no, had no native and innate right to these things, but rather, Lord, you in your graciousness and goodness, and yes, even in your judgment, have granted such an invitation to. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.